you have a Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Thanks for being in church today. Continue on with our exposition of the book of Philippians with what is likely a familiar passage if you've been in church for very long. If you haven't, it's a great one. It's a great joy for me to be able to get to stand and proclaim the Word of God out of Philippians 3. Today we have verses 1 through 11. If you're using a Bible in the chairs around you, page 981 this morning. And in those verses, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your word this morning, we ask, Lord, for this type of priority in our lives as individuals and as a congregation. One that clearly sees the eternal value of being in your Son. And not just sees the value of that, Lord, but also sees the comparative value of everything else. Give us that perspective today, Lord. And pray that you would grant me clarity of speech to proclaim the glory of what it is to be in your Son with appropriate forcefulness and accuracy. We pray that across the globe this morning, that in many pulpits where the Bible is opened and the word is proclaimed, that it would be done so with a great deference and joy to your word, a desire to accurately point your people to who you have revealed yourself to be. We pray for other friends nearby, Lord. For friend, my friend Chase Ringler this morning over at Aboit Baptist, or Luke Johnson over at North Park, Lord, would, would you work in those like-minded congregations here this morning to make much of your name and your glory in our dear friends' churches today? And we ask the same here. Turn our minds and our hearts towards you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So I preached a few weeks ago, and I had two verses, and I took the whole time, um, and, and maybe a little bit more. So uh, this morning, I have 11 verses, and they are loaded. There is a lot to 
be said. There is a lot that Paul brings up here, and so we are going to jump right into it. He begins with a command to obey. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He picks up a theme that he, he kind of put on pause as we've been going through the book of Philippians at, at kind of the culmination of, of that section in chapter 2. After we've moved on from the, the great hymn in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we, we kind of get this little section, and it concludes in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2 with a command to rejoice, right? Verse 17, if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should all be glad and rejoice with me. Well, before he kind of is able to expound on that idea, the Apostle Paul hits a pause on the command to rejoice. I want to talk to you about Timothy and Epaphroditus for a moment. And after he's concluded that little side note of these fellow laborers for the gospel, he returns back in chapter 3 to say, rejoice in the Lord. So he's picking back up on a theme that he's already introduced. That brief tangent has been concluded. Now let's go back. You are to rejoice. Christians, you who are in the Lord, you are to rejoice. It is a command. Do not let your life be marked by a lack of joy. What you have is too great to be mopey. Understand who you are, what you've been given, and therefore have joy. Now, we have to make sure that we are careful here. We cannot separate the command from the conditions that make the command possible. You are not just to rejoice in a vacuum. You are to rejoice in the Lord. It is the fact that you are in the Lord that enables your rejoicing. Don't miss the connection. It is a necessary bond between your joy and your status in Christ. You cannot produce joy. I don't know if you've ever tried. You just, just, try, just try to be joyful. Be joyful. Just try. I can't, I can't make that happen. If we could, right, we'd all be able to perfectly relegate, relegate? Regulate, that's what I want. Regulate our own emotions. Then we would choose joy and happiness and good things, but that's not us. We are fickle creatures, and the reason we are fickle creatures is because we are prone to responding to what is outside of us. The external conditions influence our internal well-being. And so our joy is frequently predicated upon our circumstances, but Paul comes along and says, no, 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 and you'll notice at the end of this passage, he, he's sharing in sufferings and rejoicing. It is a frequent command from Paul to pair that, that joy with conditions that seem the exact opposite of joy. And why is he able to do that? Well, because our joy is built on external reasons for joy. The internal joy that you share, that you delight in, is produced by something else. I can't just conjure it. And you have the most rock-steady reason for joy that has ever been. You're in the Lord. You're in the Lord, church. Therefore, rejoice. Don't miss the connection. If you are in the Lord, and we'll continue to tease this out this morning as we go through the text, then you have a favored status with God that is caught up with Christ's favored status. We saw this at the end of that hymn in Philippians 2, right? The name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no name that's above Christ, and you are in Christ. And so you have that permanent external reason that means your internal joy is unshakable. There's nothing that can touch it. It is bulletproof, a sure foundation from which joy is built. You 
are in the Lord. And we forget so frequently that we have to have someone come along like the Apostle Paul and say, hey, don't miss this. Are you in the Lord? Yes. If you, you've by faith, through the grace of God, you've repented and believed and you are in right relationship with the Almighty God of the universe, then, church, have joy. Do you see what you have? And it is a proper vision, a proper understanding of our relationship with God that brings us to that unshakable joy. Well, there's one more aspect to this command in the first verse. It's, it's no trouble to me to write the same things. It, it's unclear exactly if he's referring back to verses 17 and 18 or if this is a reference to some other letter that he has sent to the Philippians, but it, it really doesn't matter. He's told them this before. I'm going to tell you again, have joy. And it's no trouble. I'll, I'll repeat myself. And it's safe for you. Now, that's an interesting thing to grapple with. Why does joy bring safety? Church, there's, there's danger in bitterness. And if you are so dead set and focused on what you don't have or what has gone wrong and at the expense of, right, you're trying to shield out the great immense privileges that you have in Christ and you look away from that and look towards this, this frustration, this source of anger, it is easy to go wayward in that type of mindset. Have you ever met someone who's just default bitter? Oh, Lord, please keep me from that. I frequently don't want to think about growing old, but when, when I do think about growing old, it is often with a prayer, Lord, would you not let me grow bitter in my old age? I don't know if you've ever met an elder, someone in their 90s who just radiates the joy of Christ. It is so beautiful. They understand while their body's breaking down, I have nothing else that doesn't matter. All of it's gone, but I have Christ. It is safe for you. Now, in the context of Philippians 3, there's, there's a little bit more to that safety. We find that the joy you have in Christ serves as a shield against false doctrine. He's about to give them a warning against this, this false teaching that has reached the Philippians, and it is there that he says, the deeper you understand the gospel, the greater the joy that you have in Christ, the more stable your doctrinal foundation It is not just an intellectual experiment to understand the, the systematic theology of what salvation means. It is a felt, relational, joyous reality that brings you to stability in your faith. If you want to have a resiliency through the difficult doctrinal waters, you hold on to the anchor of joy of salvation. Right? That, that's Hebrews 6. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. The hope that you have in Christ anchors you where you are. And the waters of, of doctrine and the waters of circumstance will wash up against you and the joy of Christ will hold you firm. Church, have joy. Now, I wanted to pause right here and consider an objection. But as I said, these are a loaded 11 verses, right? The, the objection being a, a quite natural one, what do I do if I'm in Christ and I don't have joy? How, what am I supposed to do? And 
I'm going to say a sentence that feels yucky coming out as the most millennial thing of me ever. We'll deal with that on our podcast this week, all right? I hate, I hate saying it. I just want you to know. I had, it, I had something written down in the sermon, and there's, not, and there's too many other things. And so I chose not to deal with that objection. If you want to know, that's a shameful plug, all right? I feel it. I feel the weight. I'm sorry. Let me just plug. What else? There, ABF is going on this morning. Please go be a part of an ABF. There's 20-somethings tonight. I'll be teaching in Psalm 1. If you're a 20-something, please go to 20-somethings tonight. It'll be joyous to see you there. And that way I've plugged several other things and don't have to feel the guilt about mentioning a podcast. I, I, it's the most millennial thing that I do, and I really don't care for it in many ways. But so be it. All right. If you want to think about what to do if you don't have joy when you should, we'll talk about that later. All right. Moving on. So first, you have a command to obey. You're to have joy. But second, there is a warning to heed. This this positive, uplifting encouragement, rejoice, friends, you are in the Lord, turns quite starkly as soon as we get to verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Yeesh. Now, let me pause and chase a tangent, and I'm only doing, I know I just said I don't have a ton of time in the sermon. I know I'm going to give some time to this. Uh, I, I wrestled over whether or not this was what I should do here or not, but it shows up twice in the sermon, and it, it feels to me like it is something that our culture needs to grapple with. So let's pause for a moment and talk about language. Paul uses some very strong language in this passage. In verse 2, right here, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, the flesh mutilators. And then later in verse 8, he says that he counts all things as lost. It's rubbish, and that is a very, very gentle translation of what Paul says. When people of, of what is generally our church's culture think about words, We lean towards Ephesians 4.29, right? Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, only what is helpful for building others up. And that is good and true. But it is one side of a very unnuanced biblical take. I'm not in any way disputing it. I'm letting you know that there is a broader range of biblical witness to language. So, yes, you should use language that is helpful for building people up. But that does not mean you create a list of acceptable and unacceptable words. That is a part of a deeper biblical calling to have nuanced motives that understand when an unsavory word is used for an unsavory reality. So let me just walk you through a few things your Bible says. Just fair warning. They're not all very nice. So if you go and find in Ezekiel 16, you'll see God describe Israel, his chosen bride, repeatedly as a whore, quite strongly. You go to Isaiah 64, and you will see our righteousness described as filthy rags, which is a quite sanitized version of what is described in Isaiah. What he is describing are sanitary products for menstruation quite offensive to a Jewish mindset. You can find Christ, look at a group of Jews and say, you are of your father, the devil. Or in Matthew 23, he's speaking to a group of Pharisees, call them broods of serpents and vipers. Snakes were not especially loved creatures in ancient Israel. That is quite the slur. Or you can look at our text here in Philippians 3, 8, right? Paul counts all things as rubbish. And I've told you this before, that is a rubbish translation. It it really, we've sanitized our Bible. What that is probably, the old King James was more faithful. He translated it dung. It's probably a four-letter word in English. It's refuse. It's, It's despicable. It's disgusting. Or perhaps the most forceful of all of them, you can go to Galatians 5.12 and you can see Paul, very frustrated with the circumcision party, as he calls them, tell them that 
He wishes they would just emasculate themselves, which is quite a, a sanitized way of saying they don't go far enough in their circumcision. That's some strong language from an apostle and from your Savior and from Old Testament prophets. I bring that up not to offend you, but to suggest that we should not try to improve upon our Bible. And when we come across these, and all of our English translations make it very soft and palatable for our gentle church ears. And I think they do us a disservice by not helping us to realize that there are things in this life that deserve forceful language. And we should not have some, some spineless, neutered approach towards describing what is hateful and divisive and what is leading people away from God. Do not have your standards be more prudish than what your Bible would allow. I wish they would just stop saying mean things. And then you read Paul and you go, Yeesh. <laughs> Wow. Yes, okay, I, 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 let me grant you. You can go too far with strong language. Please do not hear this as a green light to be crass. That's not what this is. But dutiful politeness can also be an error to the point of being sinful. It can be that you can go too far with your language, but you can also stop miles short of the forceful condemnation that is deserved. And I can see this is a difficult line to walk. But the whole Christian life is difficult to walk. You are called to some very high moral standards. Let me call you to some high linguistic standards as well. Again, don't use this as license. Don't say the pastor said I could say it, all right? That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that forceful language against things that are leading people away from the truth is not only acceptable, it is biblical. Do so without hate. Do so without malice. But don't be too nice. Your Bible is frequently not nice when eternal damnation is on the line. You uncomfortable? Should we move on? <laughs> you want me to, to tell you all the words they said again? Do we want to go through the list one more time? No, okay, let's move on. Here we have one of them. Look out for the dogs. That's not a nice description. In fact, it's quite the inversion. The dogs here that Paul's referring to are Jews that are enforcing Jewish customs on Christians. And, and to call a Jew a dog is a slur. That's what the Jews called the Gentiles. And the reason they called them that is because the Gentiles had uh, no discipline in their diet like a dog. They'll eat anything. But the Jews, were, they would only eat what was clean, what was kosher. They were careful. And so Paul flips the script, looks at those good observant Jews and said, they're the dogs. Look out for this group of people. Not those who are too lax in their dietary orders. Those who are overly strict. Look out for that group. The abuse of the rules. They aren't Christians. They are, are, it's Judaism plus, right? It, it's the worst streaming service ever or something like that. It, it's like, sorry, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. It, it's this like, this added on thing. You, yes, you have Christ, but you also have to do all of these things. They are arguing that Christians still have to adhere to circumcision rituals. This is a group of devout Jews who tout the rules, follow the rules, enforce the rules. Every conversion comes with a handbook. Here's what you have to do and not do. And Paul has no place for this. They are, in the same vein of what Christ would describe in Matthew 23, like whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, and inside there are rotting corpses. And why are they so forcefully condemned? Well, because they have a misplaced confidence in the flesh. 
They are misleading you on where you are to place your hope. They think that following the ritual is going to save them. Those those dogs, those evildoers, the circumcision party. And Paul looks at them and says, no, no, no. Verse 3, we are the circumcision, speaking spiritually here. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. It is not in what we are able to do. I don't rest in what I have done, what I have accomplished. I rest in Christ. And then Paul goes on to give a little resume comparison, right? You, you want to talk about confidence in the flesh? You think you have reasons to be confident? Let me tell you about reasons to be confident. I myself have more. They've got nothing. Let me, let me give you a spiritual rundown of what I've done, who I am. And he starts with his birth, right? I... I'm circumcised in the eighth day. People of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, just by, by nature of where I was born, nothing that I did. I come from good stock, is what this says. Superior genetics. I was born in the right circumstances with parents who did the right things and the right group of people, right? I'm in the tribe of Benjamin, one of the the two tribes that were faithful to the Davidic dynasty. We didn't abandon. I'm of the right group of people. If you were an American, someone with my last name signed the Declaration of Independence type of thing. Roosevelt or Kennedy or something like that. I've got a lineage. So first, Paul appeals to his accomplishments, not that are his own, but just by the nature of his birth. But then he moves to what he has done on his own, right? Not anything that I can point to that I've done, the first few things, but then he gets to his own choices and says, it's not just where I was born, it's also what I've done. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. I joined the most strict religious group I could. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So the things that I didn't have a choice in all went my way. The things I had a choice in, I made the right choice every time. You want to go resume for resume? Let's go. Stack it up. What you got? If you are to place hope in your own action, then Paul is the person who can have hope. Right? That's what he says. If you want to go about a works-based salvation, let me show you my works are better than yours. That's what I've, I've got a better resume. And this is a warning. Don't, don't miss that. Look out. And it's a warning that we would struggle with. Because if you go to the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology and you pull out the word Pharisee and you read the definition, and if you took out all of the cultural markers and you inserted the word evangelical, it would read exactly properly. This is our type of struggle. First, you're an American. So we already have this kind of superiority complex thing going on. Right? If I just started going USA, you'd all be right there with. It takes nothing to get a group of people to be pumped about being American. We love us some America. But then on top of that, you're an American evangelical and your roots, right? The, the, if you know your church history, the Puritans wanted to stay behind and purify the Church of England, but there were a group of them that said, we can't, we need to go start our own. We generally call them pilgrims. They come over on a boat. Before they even get off the boat, they write to themselves, we are a new Jerusalem, a city on a hill, a shining example to the whole world. We are that special group of Christ followers. And I appreciate a lot of their zeal and ambition. However, they are in some ways leaning out over the edge of a works-based salvation. And you and I still stand on the edge of that precipice because that is our culture. That is our lineage that we have inherited. 
look at us. Aren't we better than the rest of the world? We are that city on a hill. Church, this is a warning for us. Don't place too much confidence in what you've done. In your church attendance record, in your giving status, in your service, in whatever else you may fill in that blank with, your education, where you were born, what choices you've made. It's a warning to heed, and it's a warning for us. We are prone to the legalistic approach of self-atonement. And we have to be mindful. It is baked into our DNA. But Paul stacks all of that up for his culture and says, I, I'm going to win this contest. I just want you to know. If we're playing bingo, I marked off my whole card before you even sat down. In all of that, verse 7, whatever gain, whatever I have, whatever I've counted, all that I've stacked up in the positive column is a loss considered. All of that is a loss for the sake of Christ. This brings us to point three, a priority to pursue. Paul has an impressive resume. He looks at it all and he goes, meh. That's nothing. Just wipe it away. Now, I don't know. <laughs> Depends on where you are and in what stage of life, what, what work you've done or where you are in, in terms of this thinking. But if you could put your life's accomplishments on paper, whether it be vocational or relational or spiritual, whatever it may be, in your mind, just try. Try to stack up. Everything you have ever accomplished, a lifetime of proud, a pride-producing earning. Put, put your net worth on that paper. Place, place the number of grandchildren you have. That corner office or that accomplishment or whatever it is, fill in all that you have done. What would it take for you to get rid of all of it? To say, all of that is worthless to me. What could you possibly put on the other side of the scale that says, I will give up everything that I have gained, everything that I have accomplished. It is okay if I were to lose all of it. My family, my job, my intellect, my abilities, my health, wipe it all away if I have Christ. And that is what Paul places before you. This is an all-consuming priority. Paul is an exemplary Jew. All of the credit that he has earned through extensive religious effort, years of training and thought and and deeds, and all of that, he stacks up and puts it in the debt column. It's a loss. Again, can you possibly, in your own life, think through everything that you have earned or accomplished, put it all together, stack it up, and then find its accounts payable? You still owe. That's not enough, and it's not even close to enough. What does he say? I count everything as a loss. There's a surpassing worth of Christ Jesus. I stacked all of that up, and then I put knowing Christ, and it just, right, if you, two bar graphs. You can't even see the everything I've earned bar, and everything in the Christ bar dominates it. It's not even, it doesn't even register on the scale. It is a loss. In fact, it's negative. It's going down. Everything as a loss compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. 
Now, I told you, and I've, I've told this story here before, but it's been a few years, and so there's some new people, and uh, you may not have heard this story, so let me tell it to you again briefly. That word right there, rubbish, as I said, in the old King James is translated dung. It is very strong as to what Paul considers all of his efforts. My wife and I used to live on the West Coast, and we moved back east uh, after a few years out there. And if you've ever driven out west, you know, it, it, the, the western states are, di- there's giant stretches where there's no people, there's no nothing. And so we're driving back, you know, we've got, I've got a moving truck with a car on a trailer on the back and my wife is driving the other car. We have radios because you're in Wyoming, there's no cell service. So we're talking back and forth on radios and for whatever reason, I was born with that innate male desire to make good time. Um, so... We were making good time. And she radios me and says, I need to go to the bathroom. I said, okay, yeah, we're doing good though. Let's just keep going for a little while, right? So we pass a couple more exits. 30 minutes goes by. She goes, no, I need to go to the bathroom. I go, okay, we'll stop at the next one. But when you're driving in Wyoming, the next one might be 45 minutes away. So we keep going nothing, 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 nothing for a long time. And I finally get to the place. I'm like, okay, we cross over the border into Colorado and we find this little rest stop. And it's, it's over. I mean, it's been an hour and a half since she first told me I need to go to the bathroom, but we were making good time. And so we cross over the border and we stop at this first little rest stop is a very generous description, right? This is a hut. It is a hut. There's no running water. There's like a thing of hand sanitizer on the wall and like the toilet paper is stacked like 50 high so somebody doesn't have to come back there and replace it. And there's no plumbing. It looks like a toilet that somebody built in Minecraft, right? It's just like this block that's lifted out of the ground with a toilet seat on it. Not a fancy place. So we pull up to this little rest stop And I don't know what the chances are, I'm guessing slim, but the day and the moment that we pulled over at that rest stop happened to be the day they were emptying the septic tank. Now, I don't know how long that little rest stop sat without needing to have a septic tank emptied, but it was incredibly remote. I'm guessing it was decades, all right? (laughs) So if you can imagine, we opened the door from our cars and went, Oh, no, like something is wrong. Like the gag reflex was immediate, and I was 50 feet, 100 feet from the, the, the hut, right? I can't, I can't call it a building. That's too generous. It's a hut. You knew right away. Any other circumstance, we would have gotten back in the car and gone, we'll go to the next one. Thanks. See you later. But I'd pushed it past an hour and a half past when it was asked for, so we didn't have a choice. This is where you're going. And you get into this little, right, not a well-ventilated room. It's, it's like plastered walls. And you step inside, and as I said, there's no P-trap at the bottom of that thing. It's just open air straight down. But when it's open air straight down and they're entering the septic tank, that means it's open air straight up as well. So this poorly ventilated hut is just has hot septic air just blowing up into your face. All right, I see some disgust. This is where I'm trying to go with this, right? It is, it is blowing in your face while you're trying to go to the bathroom. Like I, I, Your eyes are watering. The gag reflex is like a full go, trying to keep everything where it needs to be just to get out of there as fast as you can, right? We stumble out of these huts, restrooms. I don't know, the hand sanitizer on the wall. It doesn't matter. There's nothing that can wash away what you just went through. You get back into the car and just gasping for fresh air. And that is how Paul describes his righteousness. It is the hot septic air blowing in your face. It is disgusting. Here's what I consider my righteousness. That is rubbish. I consider everything I have earned as an absolute disgust. But what I have in Christ, what I have in Christ, I have no confidence in the flesh. That resume-touting circumcision party has nothing compared to Paul's humble reliance on Christ Jesus. 
It's not me, church. It's nothing I brought to the table. It is what Christ gave to me. It is the fact that I've been united to Him. Our position in God does not rest on anything we've done. It rather rests on what He has done in us. In the lost column is everything Paul has done. The only thing in the credit column is Christ. And Paul is so consumed with the person of Christ because he frees him from this religious rat race of holy behavior. Now, that doesn't mean you don't pursue holy behavior. Paul, you cannot read Philippians and think, oh, I don't have to pursue holiness. Absolutely not. Let your life be manner of the worthy of the gospel of Christ. Don't have your own interests in mind, but the interests of others. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. These are calls to holiness, but it is not for you to earn anything before God. It is because God has worked in you. The order of those two things is everything. Your holy behavior is no longer performative. You are not trying to earn you are joyously reflecting what God has earned for you. In fact, it is Christ that enables your holy behavior. I'll tease that out in just a moment. So everything else is trivial. The Christian life is one that is Christ above all. And I didn't plan this. I can't say that I, by some great, clever scheduling strategy placed this passage on graduation Sunday. But graduates, go live that life. I don't care if you are, are continuing in education. I don't care if you are working. I don't care what you are doing in what capacity or where it is. Put Christ above all. Let this be the all-consuming passion and priority of your life. Everything else is rubbish. All that, I, I count none of that in the positive column unless I have Christ that enables me to pursue those things properly. I don't want any of it. I just want Christ. That is what happens in Matthew 13 with the, the parable of the, the pearl and, and of the treasure in the field, right? You sell everything to go and buy the field because you know the treasure that is in the field is greater than all that you have. An all-consuming passion and priority for Jesus Christ. Paul says, everything else I've earned is nothing compared to being in Jesus. Now, there's a couple things I need us to notice here about Paul's preference and that this priority for Christ. First, I want you to see how it comes. And it comes through the fact that Paul is united to Christ. That he has a union with Jesus. So you hear this in the language. Count everything as loss. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That's a, that's a relational description. It's going to get even further, though. For his sake I suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness that is of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This isn't anything else except that I am united to Jesus. All that he has earned is accredited to me because I am united to him. I'm united to him. I don't do some a la carte religious choice, a little Judaism, a little Buddhism, a little Jesus. No, it, it is nothing else. It is just Christ. I need nothing else. I want nothing else. I've been united to the Savior of the universe, right? That, that, again, that's Paul's description. If you flip a little bit to your left, the famous verse in Galatians 2. Galatians 2, verse 20, right? There's nothing else. I'm no longer, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me show you one more. Flip a little bit more to the left. John chapter 15.
Starting in verse 4. Is this Christ speaking? To his disciples, he tells them, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So you are in Christ and Christ is in you. You are united to him. And you see in this text in John 15, that enables you to pursue holy behavior. Apart from him, you can't bear fruit. It is through your union with Christ that you are finally able to get rid of a selfish motive that underlies every good deed you have ever done. Now I don't have to do good things to earn favor. Favor's been given to me. Now I get to do good things because Christ has been so generous to who I am. This Christ above all preference is one that changes every aspect of who you are. There's not a little bit of you that's not Christ's. You can't make him Lord of some of your life. And, and it is because he is the Lord of our whole life that we put so much joy in being united to him, so much stock, so much weight, so much hope. You know it from the, the pen of the hymn writer, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, right? I just want to be hidden in Christ. just want to hide in there, just tuck myself away. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for sin a double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. We are in Christ. Second, you'll notice this life-altering, dominating priority for Paul. It comes through the union with Christ. And second, it brings righteousness. We are in him, and that is bringing this complete shift of priority and preference. And it brings with it, verse 9, to be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes on my own through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So three very quick things about this righteousness. First, it's not yours, it comes from God. Righteousness that you need is not something that you can find in you. It's foreign to you. It is only a righteousness from God. So first, our righteousness that we need comes from God. Second, it comes through faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that which comes through faith in Christ. And you'll say, well, well wait a minute, then it is mine. If it comes through faith, then I'm the one who has faith. No, 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 church. You can go back to Ephesians 2. Remember, it, faith is given by the grace of God. Faith is not something that you can produce on your own. It's not natural to us. I've used this example many times, but... If, if my kids were given the choice, right, if you line them up and you put a birthday cake on one side of the counter and you put a cup of cooked broccoli on the other side of the counter, there's no problem of everyone knows what they're going to choose. This isn't difficult. What is natural to them is, is short satisfaction. If you were to take a picture of them and you were to cut off the bottom of the cake and the, the broccoli and you told somebody it's a, it, it's a drug addict looking at his drug of choice, you go, yeah, that looks right. That, that's the look in their eyes. Everything that is natural to them is to lead them to destruction. That is you and I, church. I don't have the capacity to make the right choice. I need the grace of God to infiltrate, to give me faith. It's not native to me to be a person of faith. So, I have a righteousness that is from God, and that comes through faith. And then third, 
That righteousness that is from God and through faith is better than anything I can produce on my own. Right? That's the whole passage. Everything that you try to produce, this is the warning. Don't go try to produce your own righteousness. Put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in Christ. And you'll see what this does, which kind of brings us back to the initial command. That I may know Him and the power of the resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This pulls us right back to that command to be joyful. It is in Christ that I have this unshakable joy. He gives me, I'm united to him, he gives me this righteousness, and through that I am able to have joy through suffering because I have hope in my resurrection. I have hope beyond the immediate, and that produces joy that cannot be touched by my circumstances. So I ask you a question today. Church, graduates, young people, anybody within the sound of my voice, in your life, is it Christ above all? Is it Christ above all? Do you have, like the Apostle Paul, a surpassing passion and desire to know Christ at the risk of everything else? Paul is setting forth a vision for the Christian life. Fill your days, your thoughts, your desires with the glory that it is to have the righteousness of Christ that you've been given through faith and you've been united to Him. What a joyous thing. It frees me from this, this attempt of earning anything. It is Christ above all, nothing else. And when we realize what we have in Christ, when that sets down deep and those roots take hold, joy will be yours. Church, make Christ above all in your lives. Let's pray. Father God, by your Spirit and through your Word, would you enable this church to reflect the attitude of Philippians 3? A group of people that has put an all-consuming pursuit of Christ at the forefront of their life, then by your grace, would you help us not to waver from it? We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.